is Lucy Rivera. This episode can be viewed at www.discoveringthelaw.com. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Judge Peter Agnes with us. Today, he's going to share with us some of his experience in the judiciary. Judge Agnes graduated cum laude from Boston University Law School, and he graduated cum laude from Suffolk University Law School. Judge Agnes has had an illustrious career as a judge, and let us welcome Judge Agnes for him to share with us himself his, his experience as a judge. Thank you very much, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. Judge Agnes, it's our pleasure that you're here with us today. So I'll begin by saying that um, I've been a lawyer for almost 50 years and a judge for almost 30 years. And I was very fortunate when I started as a judge in the 1990s to be appointed to the Charlestown District Court because that court uh, is a very historic court. It's the court where the first African-American appointed as a judge in the North was appointed, and that was George Ruffin. And to this day, there is a society at Northeastern University in his honor known as the Ruffin Society. So when you go into the Charlestown District Court and you sit on the bench, behind you is a big portrait of George Ruffin. And then when you look out to the audience through one of the windows, you can see the Bunker Hill Monument. So you can't get much more historic than that. Indeed, Judge Agnes, and who better here to share with us um, the different um, aspects of the different courts and tell us about your different positions as a judge in Boston? Well, being in Charlestown was a real opportunity because the court was only open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Now, that doesn't mean the judge had Tuesday and Thursday off. What happened was the judge in Charlestown would be assigned to other courts on Tuesday and Thursday. So I had the, um, the good fortune of sitting in every court in the city of Boston in the beginning of my career. So I sat in the Roxbury District Court, the Dorchester District Court, the East Boston, South Boston District Courts, the Chelsea District Court, the West Roxbury District Court, every one of the courts in Suffolk County. And that was an education in itself. Um, and Judge Actus, why do you say that? What is the most important thing you learned from this experience? Well, by sitting in all those different courts, of course, you encounter every neighborhood in the city of Boston. Boston has always been a city of neighborhoods, uh, different races, ethnic backgrounds, uh, beliefs. And what I learned and was reinforced by these experiences was that we are all more alike than we are different. And when you get on the bench in the morning, you see um, some um, very sad stories, uh, you see some tragedies, you see people in uh, great distress who have been injured sometimes or abused. If you think about all the people who come before you in that way, that despite what happened to them or despite what they are accused of doing, they that we are still more alike than we are different, then I think you've started the day in the right frame of mind and you're prepared to do the job. Um, Judge Agnes, that's an, an incredible attitude for people in Boston who are intimidated by the court system and seeing that you made them feel welcome. But out of all these cases that you presided over, are there any particular cases that you feel were striking to you? Uh, 
that you remember out of all those cases that you heard of for 50 years? Well, I think if you ask any judge who's been uh, on the bench for a number of years, uh, he or she will tell you that there are so many cases, it's hard to pick some out. But I, I can think of two uh, in particular. Uh, when I was in the district court, where I spent the first 10 years, I remember a case where a young man and woman were driving in a car in Boston, and the car went off a bridge and into the Mystic River. And the uh, young woman was killed. The young man uh, was charged with motor vehicle homicide, which is a, an offense that's punishable by imprisonment in state prison. And most of the time when that offense occurs and someone's been convicted, uh, they go to jail or they go to prison. Now, this young man didn't have any prior convictions, but still a death occurred, and he was responsible for the death. But what I remember about the case was when it came time to sentence this young man, the mother of the girl he was with, his girlfriend, she came into court and spoke, and that's the right of the victim or the victim's family in, in these cases. And instead of asking for punishment by having this man sent to jail who killed his daughter, her daughter, she asked the court to place him on probation because she said she knew he loved her, her daughter. She knew that they were good to each other and with each other. And she would not want to see his life ruined because of this tragic event. And you know that made me appreciate the tremendous heart that some people have who have suffered a grievous loss. And I did place him on probation, and I don't believe he ever committed another offense to my knowledge. But you know, those are some of the cases that judges have where the prosecutor may be asking for a sentence of imprisonment. And after all, someone died. Someone was killed because of the conduct of someone else. But in these circumstances where the victim's family sees the bigger picture and asks for the judge to show leniency towards the defendant, uh, one of the best features of our law is in such cases the judge has a choice. The judge doesn't have to sent, sentence someone to imprisonment. And by the way, that case also reminds me of a new movement that's going on in the court system that I'm working with many others on called restorative justice. And the legislature in Massachusetts has passed a very sweeping law that allows this alternative to the prosecution of persons. Now, it requires the approval of the district attorney and the victim, but the idea of restorative justice is that there is a better way to deal with crime, in many cases, than by punishing someone. And that better way is trying to uh, make this person understand the harm that he or she caused and how to repair it. And this is something that I think people are going to be hearing much more about. Your Honor, I do. I, I think that that definitely addresses recidivism. But what I would like to hear from you, if you could share with us, how do you think that can be implemented, and how could that? How could you make someone understand or realize what they've done? Well, fortunately, we're not the first state to try this. So there's a great deal of um, experience in other states, and this is not something that was just invented. It's a new law, a fairly new law in Massachusetts, but. The concept of restorative justice is an ancient one, and it comes out of native traditions. 
So there's a great deal of experience with it. And we are very fortunate that our Chief Justice of our Supreme Judicial Court, Kimberly Budd, uh, is a proponent and is putting together a plan uh, to have pilot programs in the courts that would deal with restorative justice uh, and offer this alternative. And as I said, it requires the approval of the district attorney. It requires the approval of the victim. And it requires specially skilled people to create what are called circles, where people who, are, who have committed crimes encounter the community and the victims in a way that is healing for both the victims and uh, reformative for the person who committed the crime. Um, it, I, we look forward to seeing that initiative. It does really seem that with the necessary systems, you could prevent somehow recidivism. Um, thank you, Your Honor. I think if you would like to talk more about that, we can come back to that point. But I would like to ask you, as you've been a judge for so long, your struggle in making these choices. In, in, when you decided that case, when the mother came over, you were facing a choice. Um, how do you handle that difficulty? Well, the first thing I would say is, um, and I think most judges would agree with this, is that we never know enough about the people in the cases that we have to make decisions about. And we have large numbers of cases. I remember days in the Dorchester District Court and the Roxbury District Court or the West Roxbury District Court where one judge in a day would have 100 cases to process. Now, you don't have to make decisions in every case, but when you think about the number of people who come before a judge in a day, it's not possible to have all the information you would like to have to make the best decision. So you have to rely on lawyers if there are lawyers, but of course many people who come to court don't have lawyers. So you have to rely to some extent on the experience you and other judges have had in these cases, uh, but lack of information is one of the things that I think judges struggle with every day. And pointing out that aspect, it is really important that judges are educated and well-informed. How does a judge uh, keep up with the law, or how do they learn about the new nuance or the new laws in order to make these decisions? Well, this is one of the um, things that I'm uh, most uh, excited about, because when I retired as a judge in 2020, um, I began to work part-time for an organization called the Flashner Judicial Institute. Now, most people have probably never heard of it, very small, uh, but it was created in memory of a wonderful man, Franklin Flashner. In the 1970s, he began the first continuing education for judges. So just imagine, we're coming up to tax day soon, April 15th, and some people need help with their tax returns so they might go to a tax preparer. Now just imagine if you went to a tax preparer and someone said, we have the perfect person for you. Mary Smith has been here for 15 years and she's gonna be your tax preparer. And you asked about, well, what kind of background does she have? Oh, she took a course when she began. Oh, and what has she done since then? Well, she's prepared thousands and thousands of tax returns. Well, has she studied anything about the changes in the law? Well, I don't know. We'll have to ask her. How would you feel if you were in the hands of that person? Not very so, safe. 
continuing education. Now, that's the way it was in the 1970s with judges. You had to be a lawyer. You had to have experience. But when you were appointed, there was no, no system for continuing education. So when Chief Justice Flashner died, the people who uh, admired him the most created this organization. And the only mission, the sole mission, is to provide educational programs for judges. And what makes it special is that it re we receive no funding from the state or the federal government. All of the support comes from lawyers and judges who make contributions. And the other remarkable thing is the board of directors is almost all sitting judges. So when we design programs for judges, we're relying on people who know what judges want and who know what judges need. And so we're very lucky to have uh, wonderful um, directors. Chief Justice Budd is the honorary president of Flashner. Justice Kafka, who was on our Supreme Court, is the president. And we have a board of 25 judges, as I said, who come from all different parts of Massachusetts. So right now, I, I, I was mentioning to you earlier, today, for example, I was working with a group of judges to design a program for judges to learn more about neuroscience, which investigates how the brain works, and more importantly, what happens to the brain when it is subjected to trauma. We all know children growing up uh, suffer many different kinds of trauma. And as young adults, they may suffer abuse. They may be chronic alcohol or drug users. All these things affect the brain. And of course, the brain affects behavior. So neuroscience is investigating how these uh, factors affect brain development and also behavior. And we know, for example, I think people have a sense that young people uh, don't have the same judgment that older people do. Well, that's because the brain is still developing, even when someone might be 17, 18, 19 years old. So this is some of the work that the Flashner Institute does. Um, Your Honor, that's fascinating work. Today, uh, we are learning from Judge Peter Agnes about his experience as a judge and about the Flashner Institute. This episode can be viewed at www.discoveringthelaw. Uh, judge Agnes, how do you know, or how does the Institute know, what are the areas of the law that you need to bring to judges these days, or how would they pick a topic, and how do they, how do they identify that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we do surveys every year of all the judges in Massachusetts, and we ask them to tell us what you need, what do you feel you need to know more about. Um, and we collect all this information, and we have experienced judges uh, review it, and then we start to design programs. We also contact authors. For example, um, one of our goals is to increase judges' understanding of the human condition. Judges need to know much more than the law. Yes. They need to understand people yes. and, and how people behave and act and what contributes to that. So when Dr. Ibrahim Kendi first came to Boston, to Boston University a couple of years ago, um, we contacted him, and I believe uh, his, his program for judges was one of the first public events he did in Massachusetts. And of course, 
Uh, we were talking about his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in that book, I believe, one of the things he talks about is race as an artificial uh, construct, because we are more alike than we are different. If you ask scientists uh, about uh, people, they will tell you that if you study people scientifically, if you study people's DNA, you find that someone from a far distant place in the world is almost identical in that sense to people living here, even though culturally and ethnically and racially there may be differences. So I think understanding each other and how much we are alike is the key to making progress in society in general and also in the court system. Um, so, Your Honor, these classes from Flashner, do they, are, do they only address the gaps in the law or the new law, or, or do they also address social or implicit bias or addresses? Very much so. In, in, in fact, implicit bias is one of the, one of the um, uh, educational objectives that we have, mm -hmm. uh, and we try to integrate that into all the programming that we do. That none of us is a blank slate. When you put a robe on in the morning and you go out on the bench, you're bringing with you many of the uh, biases that you uh, developed and maybe you don't even recognize them. So you have to try to be conscious of your viewpoint and keep that out of the decisions that you have to make uh, to the extent that you can. Which is a difficult it's very difficult, you know, because judges, um, just like people who sit on a jury, just like others, can become emotionally involved in what comes before them, and that is not the role that the judges require to be in. Uh, Your Honor, we have five minutes left, but I do know that you are very well familiar with the Zacco and Vincetti case. Um, we have just five minutes, but would you like to share something with some of the takeaways or your... Impressions of well, this. this is a perfect, I think, example of how bias and prejudice can influence the way people in court are treated. So uh, Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were two <laughs> Italian immigrants, and they were charged and convicted of a robbery and a murder in 1921. They were executed at the Charlestown State Prison in 1927, and the case became a cause celeb around the world because people believed that they were being prosecuted and convicted not for what they did, but for who they were, because they were uh, anarchists. They had a very radical view of society, and um, there is a great deal of evidence that uh, bias and prejudice influenced the way that case was handled. So um, it's been a case of interest to me for many, many years. A cause celeb for what reason? If it happened in Massachusetts and you would it think did. that it and seems to be... And the remarkable thing is, in every major capital in Europe, in South America, and uh, other continents, when they were executed, thousands and thousands of people protested. When the caskets of the two men were taken from the funeral home to the Forest Hills Cemetery, the People who lined Tremont Street all the way out to Jamaica Plain were estimated to be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And there is a film, only one brief seven-minute film of this remains because 
The case was so controversial that when they were executed, J. Edgar Hoover, then the head of the FBI, uh, asked all of the news, television, and media people to destroy all the video associated with the case because he felt it would be used for propaganda purposes. So very little of that remains. But there is a film that demonstrates how passionate people were about this because it shows thousands and thousands of people lining the streets of Boston as the funeral procession went by. What's the, what, is that a film that can people view or is it just a, uh, I, a, I a have documentary? A copy of, yeah, it's a documentary. documentary. I have a copy of it, but it's not widely it's not something been viewed. That anyone can view. Why is it so controversial? Um, well, the trial judge uh, was a man who expressed opinions about the case during the trial. That's not permitted. Um, of course, at that time, there were no women allowed on the jury. It was a jury made up all of men. And the um, foreperson of the jury, the person who was in charge of the jury deliberations, also made comments about the political views of the two men. The political views played a big role in the trial. These two men had left Massachusetts and went to Mexico to avoid the draft during World War I. That was, that was a came crime. up at trial. Is that the, was that the crime? Well, it was, it was used against them at trial as a sign of their disloyalty. So they were, and, and they were, the, the evidence was very controversial. They were not being tried for the crime they committed, but they were being tried for everything else on top of it, as avoiding That's the draft. That's one way to look at it. Um, well, Your Honor, I believe we only have one minute left. Um, for our viewers, this has been a presentation from Judge Peter Agnes. Um, my name is Lucy Rivera, and um, this episode can be viewed at www.discoveringthelaw. Uh, Judge Agnes, what are your last takeaways before we wrap up? I would encourage um, any young people who um, are thinking about a career to think about the law as a career. Uh, it's a long road to get there. Um, but there are many more supports than there used to be, and there aren't too many other careers I can think of where you can help more people at a time of crisis than by being a lawyer. Because sometimes people are just like they are when they go into an emergency room. They're in desperate need of assistance, and lawyers can provide that. So if you want to change the world one person at a time, you can do that as a lawyer. Thank you, Your Honor. And with those amazing words, which I echo and I believe in, um, it was a pleasure having you here. Thank you for your time and for sharing with us your experience and your wisdom now in perpetuity. Thank you for having me. For our viewers, thank you so much for your time. And again, my name is Lucy Rivera, and see you soon. <laughs>